Welcome. So glad to be with you. I'm Pastor Tim. Serve here with Pastor Matt and the elders. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to, uh, to share with you guys this morning. God is good. We are studying this summer His attributes. Who is God? We don't want to just follow God like we want Him to be or, or that makes sense to us. We want to follow the God of the Scriptures. God as He truly is, as He has revealed Himself. And this morning we're going to talk about His power and His sovereignty. God's power is one of the foremost of His attributes, one of the ones you could argue is most easily seen. But what, what is power? What is power? Power is, is really having control over something or over someone else, right? I, I think as, as humans, we're sort of attracted to power. We love watching powerful things. You know, that's why we, we stand at, the, at Niagara Falls or we, or we peer up at the stars or we gaze out over the ocean. Things that are more than us, bigger than us, more powerful than us. We're awed by them. We're drawn to them. And you can, of course, have physical power and strength, strength over a heavy weight, Right? You're exerting power over that weight when you show yourself to be stronger and, and picking it up. But you can also have other types of power, power or influence over people. The ability to control others makes you powerful. What makes a, what makes a person powerful? Some say, you know, it's money. Money is power. Others say it's, it's physical strength. You know, might makes right. If you, if you have the physical force, well, you're right. You get the... The ability to call the shots. We've certainly seen that at times sex is power or other things in the world are power. All power, whether good or bad, good power is derived from God. Even power used for, for evil purposes is, is ultimately a manipulation, a distortion of the one who has all power, who distributes all power, God himself, the one who is all-powerful. God is all-powerful and has all authority over every aspect of creation. God freely does all that He desires. In God's providence that we'll talk about this morning, we see that God is purposefully working, purposely working in creation for the good of all creation, for His ultimate glory, that God would be honored, would be recognized as supreme. And so we're going to talk this morning about three big concepts you can see in your bulletin. We'll talk about God's omnipotence. We'll talk about God's sovereignty, and we'll talk about God's providence. So first, God's omnipotence is, is really just God's power, right? But, but omnipotence means not just that God is powerful, it means that He is all-powerful. His power is infinite. Over 50 times in the Scripture, God is called the Almighty, right? Plenty of people and examples of things that are mighty, but God is almighty, Right? He has the power to create the universe, the power to create each individual life that has ever been born. And we look at acts of nature and hurricanes or earthquakes and, you know, the, the burning heat of the sun, ice caps, and you can look at molecules under a, a microscope. These are all displays of God's power, the one who, who thought them, created them, brought them into existence, and now sustains them and controls them. But yet God also has another type of power, power to forgive, power to bring healing, physical, emotional, spiritual, power to transform lives, to take the lost, the broken, the hopeless, the helpless, the failures, and to transform them into his sons and daughters for glory. And God's omnipotence, when we think about God being all-powerful, right, omnipotence, all, and power, it should stir us to awe, to wonder, to praise 
David, in, in First Chronicles, he gathers all of the precious metals and the elements for the temple. He's not going to build the temple. His son will, but he brings in all the donations. And he praises God this way in First Chronicles 29. He said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our Lord, and praise your glorious name. Isn't that a beautiful passage? You thought First Chronicles was boring. Isn't that a beautiful passage, exalting, praising God? And we say this morning, God, we give thanks to you for your power and your glory and your might. And so we stand in all of God for his power. But we also recognize God is, is all-powerful. And as we've seen throughout this series, that attribute doesn't stand in isolation, right? God is in unity with all of his attributes working together. In fact, we saw last week... That, that to be all-knowing without wisdom would just sort of be a tragedy, right? God just doesn't know everything. He's wise in how he carries out his knowledge. And I would argue that to be all-knowing without being all-powerful would, would sort of be sad and pathetic, right? It'd be ineffective to know everything but have no ability to do anything about it. And so these attributes must go together. And this morning I want us to see that to be all-powerful without wisdom, without goodness, that would just be dangerous, and so thank God that he's not just powerful, that he is wise in knowing how to use his powerful and that he is good in his acts. See, because God's mighty power operates in concert, you could say, with every other attribute, that means that there are things that God cannot do. You can tweet that if you want. There are things that God cannot do with his power, right? God cannot violate his own character. He can't violate his own moral law. He is all-powerful, but he's not going to use his power to do that. God is not going to lie. He cannot use his power for evil ends. And no, God cannot create a rock so heavy that he can't lift it. That's something he can't do, right? Because he's all-powerful. But his power works in concert with every other attribute that we have seen and will continue to see. His goodness, his love, his wisdom, his mercy, his justice, his equity, his peace. Now, as we talk about God being omnipotent and creating the universe and sustaining all things and, 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 and caring for our lives, you might think, well, that's an incommunicable attribute. Remember, we've seen these attributes. Some of them God communicates to us, meaning he shares with us. And we've seen that some are more communicable, right? The love of God is something that we share, that we can display. But, but, but I would argue, along with other theologians, that God's omnipotence, the fact that God is almighty, is actually one that he shares with us. Now, we, we're not all powerful, but we can have power. In fact, humanity is created in the image of God, created to be like him. And we have great physical strength and mental strength. And, and humanity can build and we can create, we can invent things, we can destroy things and we can repair those things. We can exercise great rule and authority on the earth. We can stand in strength through the work of Christ and against the spiritual forces of darkness against, against spiritual powers. And so we can have great power, yet we can never forget that all power is ultimately derived from God. So no matter what you think you have or can do, no matter how smart you are, or strong you are, or powerful you are, all power is derived from God. 
And so while the omnipotence of God should stir us to, to wonder to all, it should also drive us toward Him, drive us toward Him with open hands as, as ones who are continually running out of power, running out of strength, right? What did we read a minute ago in First Chronicles? In your hand, God, our power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And so if God is the one that's going to give strength to all, then we need to be going to God for His strength. For those moments, and some, for some of you it's like right now, those moments when you are weak from lack of rest, or that you're tired from lack of sleep, or weary from the busyness of life, or you are worn out from all of your many, many responsibilities, or you're overwhelmed in life by temptation, or you feel depleted of all of your strength because the enemy's attacks are so severe. Remember the one who has all power. And, and it's not about going to yourself. It's not about looking inward. It's about looking out to the one who has all power. To the one, guess what, who never gets worn out. Somehow keeps going day after day after day and never needs to sleep. Never needs to recharge. And the scriptures say that he gives power to the faint. This beautiful promise Written in poetry in Isaiah 40, and many of you know this scripture, Isaiah 40, 28. Hear the word of the Lord. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And so this morning we give praise and thanks to God that he has all power. And we worship him and we submit to him. But thank God that that he gives us his power. And so when you feel weary and faint, when you are struggling, you can give up. You can look to the world, you can look to yourself, or you can fall on your knees before God and to say, would you cause me to, to mount up on wings like eagles? God, would you renew my strength? Because even the strongest among us, the youngest among us, eventually become exhausted and their energy runs out. And so God, who is all-powerful, is generous to us. So let's go to Him. And thank God that He doesn't just have great power, but he uses his power, right? And, and you can go to a circus or, or, or go to a show and see, see mighty men of strength that tear phone books and that lift great weights. But there's something about that that's, that's interesting, it's exciting, but it's, it's sort of useless, right? Unless you're going to use your power to build bridges, to conquer enemies, to, to, to bring life. And so God doesn't just have power, He uses power. That's what we mean when we talk about God's sovereignty. See, God is not just omnipotent, God has sovereignty, which, which is God's power ruling. See, sovereignty is power that is, is being used. Sovereignty is the exercise of power to rule, to govern, to bring authority to the world. Now, sovereignty, we typically think about that in political terms, right? We talk about a nation being sovereign. That means that they are independent or they are self-governed. A self-governed people, we say that's a sovereign nation. And, and a nation might be sovereign in some sense over their land, over their people. But that's not ultimate sovereignty, 
right? No nation lives in complete isolation. No nation has complete authority. Nations rely on other nations for trade, for natural resources outside of, of themselves. We rely on, on the world that God has created. No sovereign nation can just say, I'm, I'm only going to use what's on my island or my continent, right? We need the sun, we need the rain, there's, there's trade. Ultimately, we rely on God to sustain us. See, only God is truly sovereign. His power and His sovereignty is not limited by anything or anyone else. God is fully independent, completely autonomous. He's self-sustaining. God's power is not dependent on anything else, not dependent on anyone else. He's not restrained by anything or anyone else. He isn't limited by anything or anyone. He doesn't have to check with anybody. He doesn't have to get permission to excuse me. Would it be okay if I create these people? Would it be okay if I save this person? Would it be okay if I, if I send rain on July 11th, 2021? He, he just simply has the power to do it, the desire to do it, and he does it. And it's incredibly comforting, I think, to know that, that God is not influenced or pressured by anything outside of himself. Right? We get suspicious and leery if a politician is being overly influenced by lobbying groups, if your boss is, is receiving whispers from the CEOs of other companies. Right? We get concerned about those things. Wait a minute, they're not objective. Wait a minute, they're being, they're being influenced by, by sources outside of themselves. We don't have to worry about that with God because His sovereign power means that He simply does what He wants. Without consultation, you might say. Psalm 115.3 says that our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. Whatever brings pleasure and joy, whatever brings God glory, He does it. Psalm 135, 5-7 says, For I know that the Lord is great and that the Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and in all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the winds from his storehouses. See, God rules and he reigns our lives and our world, all creation according to his own desires, what pleases him and what he knows to be right. If he were to get counsel from someone outside of himself, if he were to check with, with, with other beings or other people or other angels, he, he would be risking his perfection, his own goodness, his own rightness, because he is the standard of goodness and rightness and wisdom. So he has no one to check with other than himself, no one to please other than himself. And thank God for that, that he creates and he sustains and he governs the world with total power, with complete authority. Now you said, wait a minute, if God has total power, if he doesn't have any checks and balances with anybody else, isn't that dangerous, right? I mean, we, we've learned, it's been said famously, that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that is true. That is true when it comes to fallen human beings. That's why, why we need accountability. We don't want authority unchecked. But again, this is why we're thankful that God's attributes don't stand in isolation. This is not a being that just has power and nothing else. He is a being who has complete and perfect power along with holiness, untainted by the fallen world, goodness, love, justice. And so we know that God will always use his power for good, just, holy, loving ends because it operates in unity and consistency with himself. And so we see God's sovereignty at work across the world, across the globe, over everything. 
The scriptures talk about God being sovereign over all creation, all of nature. That the stars, the planets, the wind, the power of gravity, the changing tides, earthquakes and storms, every raindrop, every snowflake answer to the beck and call of God. And even things that in our world appear to be random chance are governed by God's sovereignty. Proverbs 16.33 says that the, the lot is cast into the lap. Meaning you roll the dice. It seems random from our perspective, but it's every decision is from the Lord. God's sovereignty doesn't just extend over nature and over random chance. But the scriptures teach us that God's sovereign rule even extends over the actions of Satan, over the evil acts done in rebellion against him. Proverbs 16, 4 says that the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. And in God's beauty and goodness and glory and justice and power, even the things that, that are done in rebellion against him are done according to his plan to accomplish his purposes. And you think, okay, well, God is so big. God is so powerful, orchestrating the universe, every molecule, every event of nature. Surely he's, he's focused on the big picture, but he doesn't forget you. Don't think for a moment that God is so big and so powerful that he forgets about you. In fact, he is so big and he is so powerful that he knows you and he remembers you and he's at work in your life just as he's at work keeping the planets in their orbit. He sustains and he controls every cell in your body. Every thought, every word, every action is under his sovereign good leadership. Proverbs 21 says that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he will. And and so the king acts, the man, the woman acts and thinks and desires and, and God says, and that will be used according to my will. See, every circumstance in your life, the good, the bad, the hard, the easy, every relationship, the best friends that are faithful for the last 13 years, the people that irritate you five minutes after you've met them, every relationship is under God's sovereign control. Every blessing that you have received in life, every trial you've received in life, everything that has been given to you and everything that's been taken from you is at the hand of our good, sovereign God. So, so how do we live, we ask ourselves? How do we live in light of the one that is in sovereign control, ruling over us, the Almighty? Maybe we just ignore it, and people do that, and they live their lives ignoring the power of God, thinking they're in control, thinking they can make decisions. Maybe, maybe you stand in fear of God. I mean, a God this powerful, I should be afraid of Him, and I should cower against Him. Maybe you stand in resistance, right? And you live your life fighting. No, I want power. I want control fighting and resisting against God. Maybe you just stand in overt rebellion. I defy you. I don't want you. I'm going to live on my own. How do we live in in, in light of God's sovereign rule? I think we can learn a lesson from a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. You know the story of King Nebuchadnezzar? He was not an Israelite king. Actually, he was the king of Babylon, one of Israel's enemies. He was the one that conquered Judah 
that by the hand of God was sent in to bring punishment and judgment on God's people. And he took Daniel, the prophet, along with other young men and, and, and other exiles, and he took them to the land of Babylon. And Daniel tells us in his prophetic book in the Old Testament that one day King Nebuchadnezzar is walking on the roof of his palace, surveying the capital city, the majesty and the beauty of the capital city. And, and Nebuchadnezzar is gloating, saying, look at my kingdom, look at my empire. And he thinks he's the bee's knees, the best thing since sliced bread. And he thinks he's sovereign over this great empire. Look at what he's done. He's even conquered God's people. But as he's there on the roof, there's this voice that comes out of heaven. And this voice from heaven declares, Nebuchadnezzar, everything's going to be taken away. Until you can acknowledge that God is the Most High, the one that rules over humanity, everything will be taken away. And we read in God's word that Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind. He leaves his palace and his kingdom and he goes out into the wilderness and he acts like a crazy person, like an animal living in the wilderness until he is finally humbled, until he finally acknowledges that God is the most high. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar says in his own words in Daniel chapter 4. He says, at the end of the days, after all this had happened, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So how do we live? How do we live in light of God's sovereign rule and reign over our lives and over the world? Well, I would recommend, as I believe Nebuchadnezzar would probably recommend as well, that we walk in humility before him. And friends, brothers, strangers, I would urge you that if you walked in here this morning afraid of God, resistant to God, in rebellion against God, pridefully exerting your own desire, your own wishes, your own authority over your life, please, please humble yourself before Him. Acknowledge His power over you. Submit to His power over you. Walk in obedience because that's where there's life. That's what He deserves. That's what He desires. And that's where we find life. And God forbid you stand in such defiant pride that, that God is forced out of, out of mercy and justice. He's forced to humble you as he did to Nebuchadnezzar. And many, many men and women who have lived their lives in, in, in pride and self-sufficiency, thinking that they were autonomous, that they were sovereign, have found themselves, whether externally or just internally, have found themselves at the bottom of the pit, realizing that it, it had all been taken away. And so we are called to, to walk under the authority, to walk with, to walk in submission and obedience to this great God under His rule. Because under His rule is where there's life, where there's full life, where there's abundant life. See, because God is not just powerful, He's not just using His power to rule, but God's power is ruling with purpose. And that's what we mean thirdly this morning when we talk about God's providence. God's providence is God's power ruling with purpose. Isn't that interesting? Somehow that got cut off the slide. 
Somebody write that up for me. With purpose. God's power ruling with purpose. Now look, there are three main ways to look at the universe. And you go across continents, religions, cultures, time. Three main ways people have looked at the universe around them. The first one is just chaos. And the, and the chaos view says, look, there is nothing guiding the universe. There is no direction, no purpose. Everything that happens is random. And yeah, you might occasionally stumble into some good luck. You might occasionally stumble into some bad luck. But there's no reason behind either. And to look for pattern or meaning or purpose in the universe is, is just an exercise of futility. So if some people just, just view things as chaos. For others, there's this perspective of destiny. Right? That, that this idea of like fate. Some even talk about it in terms of karma. And the idea here is that there's a force guiding the universe, but it's an impersonal force. It's not a being, it's not a person. It's just this impersonal force And each person has a mysterious destiny. You don't know what the destiny is. It can't be communicated to you through any logical means. But each person has a destiny. The destiny must be fulfilled. And that means that there are some things that happen that are just meant to happen. Right? And you hear that in the world. Well, that was meant to happen. By who? By what? Well, it was just meant to. The universe meant it. Some people think that there is just fate that's guiding all of us, and, and good behavior will be rewarded and bad behavior will be punished sort of by the universe, right? And Mother Nature just sort of carries out certain deeds and there's fate and there's destiny. Some of you remember that, that, that show, I think it was back in the 90s, My Name is Earl, right? These two numbnuts sort of just operated, but there's karma out there. And we have to be careful because this is meant to happen and that's not, when you don't do it, karma is going to come to get us. Just this impersonal force. But there's a third view of the universe, which is providence. And providence says that there is a supreme, intelligent, personal God that has designed the universe, created the universe, that is actively sustaining all things in the universe according to the distinct properties that He has given them. And so things typically act according to the properties with which this supreme, intelligent, personal God has created them. And God is purposely guiding the universe directing things to fulfill a purpose that that, that there's a there's a distinct purpose a design and intentionality and just as an inventor has a certain vision purpose behind his or her invention god has a purpose for all things in the universe and this is what we mean by providence providence is the exercise or excuse me sovereignty is the exercise of power Right? We've said God is sovereign. He's exercising his, his power. And we can say that providence is purposeful sovereignty. See, providence is exercising power with a purpose. God's not just showing off and, and flexing his muscles. He's not just showing off and flexing his muscles to, to rule us. He's exercising his power with a purpose. God's sovereign power is driven by his wisdom. That, that's what providence means. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 46 speaks as the mouthpiece of God and God says this, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east 
and the man of counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. And something as seemingly meaningless as a bird of prey flying in from the east, something as, as important as a man of counsel, an important, important wise man coming from a far country to deliver a message or to act in governance, God says, I speak and it happens. I bring it to pass because I have a purpose for all things. See, God's omniscience, His, His almighty power is working with a purpose, a perfect plan for all things. John Piper this, this, this humble pastor, this bold preacher, this wise theologian has written what some would call his life's work, this 600-page page book simply called Providence. And, and no, I haven't read it. I, I plan to use it like an encyclopedia, you know, and you pick out a chapter or a page when you need to. But, but in this, this work on Providence, he says this, The providence of God, His purposeful sovereignty, is all-embracing, all-pervasive, and invincible. Therefore, God will be completely successful in the accomplishment of His ultimate goal for the universe. God's providence is guided by the counsel of His will. This counsel is eternal, all-knowing, and infinitely wise. Its plans and goals, therefore, are perfect and cannot be improved. They never change. Providence is the purposeful sovereignty that carries those plans into actions, guides all things towards God's ultimate goal, and leads to the final consummation. You ever think about, I mean, I know you do, we think about our lives. We think about the lives of our loved ones and trials they face and hardships they face. And we, we read about current events and we read about COVID and we read about uh, earthquakes and condos that fall down in Tampa and, and presidents that are assassinated in, in Haiti. And we see these things and we read these things and we think it could have been, it should have been different. It could have been easier. It could have been better. And I agree with Piper the, the plans and purposes of God cannot be improved. And we are so finite and so short-sighted when we think that things could have been, should have been, would have been better, would have been different. God's plan is perfect and it cannot be improved. See, God's providence, His power ruling with a purpose, is reigning over all things, over presidents and nations, over history, over current events, over nature and humanity, over all that is good and all that is evil, over sin and suffering, over your life, over your heart. And And... And friends, I would call us today to to embrace the fact that this is a great comfort. This is a great joy. That we do not live in a world of chaos. We do not live in in a world of of fate. We do not live in a world where where you are responsible for your own life. Where the end point of your life is somehow dependent upon your choices and your decisions and your wisdom and, and your power. We live in a world where we rely upon and find comfort in the providence of God. A providence of a God that is good, that is wise, that is loving. And He is a powerful and sovereign Father, a Father that is guiding all things. Guiding your lives. Guiding your loved ones. And so we hold on to the promise of of Romans 8.28 that Christians have memorized and recited in their hearts, recited at funerals, encouraged others with. We know that, that all things work together for good. For those who love God and are called according to it. His purpose. When you love the Lord, when you are called by Him according to His purpose, then He says all things will work together according to your good and His ultimate glory. And we rest in that. 
We rest in God's providence. You want to know what providence is if, you're, if you still don't get it? I, I think we can look at the, the story of, of Joseph's life. Some of you know this story in the book of Genesis. Joseph grew up in a big family. He's got nine older brothers and one younger brother, but he is his dad's favorite. His father, Jacob, gives him this special coat because Joseph was his favorite. Of course, what happened? All the other brothers got jealous. And then Joseph starts having these dreams sent from God. And in his dreams, his parents and his brothers are all bowing down to him. And he shares these dreams with his brothers. And what happens? It just stirs them to jealousy. And they're even more jealous until one day they've had enough. And they say, we're going to kill him. And they're outside of their father's sight. And they want to kill their brother Joseph. And the oldest brother, Reuben, he's got enough sense, enough conscience to say, let's not kill him. Let's mistreat him and throw him in a pit. And so they do that. And then when Reuben's not looking, another brother says, you know what? There's a caravan coming by. And so Judah says, let's sell our brother into slavery. Instead of just abandoning him here, let's make some money. And so they sell Joseph into slavery to this caravan going to to Egypt. Now imagine, put yourself in Joseph's shoes, tied up in in the back of this caravan on your way to Egypt. Your brothers just sold you into slavery. You have nothing. You don't speak the language. You're a a, a prisoner, a slave. You're on your way through the desert going to... Now do you... Do you think, oh, God, you're good, and I'm so thankful for this? Or do you think, God, you've abandoned me? What are you doing, right? He gets to Egypt. He's sold to the house of a man named Potiphar. He becomes Potiphar's slave. But but Joseph is intelligent and wise, and he has favor, and he rises up in in the household of Potiphar until until he is Potiphar's right-hand man, and he's leading and managing the whole household. Things are going well for Joseph. And in that season when things are going well, maybe he was grateful for God's providence then because it seemed like things were smooth. But then he faces this obstacle. Potiphar's wife decides that, that, that she wants Joseph and she begins to make sexual advances to him. And, and Joseph's a man of integrity. He says, no, I'm not, not going to do that to my master. And, and he puts her off day after day after day until finally Potiphar's wife is so fed up and so bitter towards Joseph. She says, fine, if you won't have me, I'll destroy you. And she accuses him of of rape, falsely accuses him. She tells her husband, Joseph is arrested and now thrown into a dungeon. An Egyptian dungeon, a prison, falsely accused of rape, not an Egyptian citizen, no hope for freedom. Now again, you're sitting there in this dark cell. Do you think to yourself, oh God, this is your good and perfect plan. Thank you for your sweet hand of providence. Is that what you would be thinking? I don't know that I would. In the moment, in the midst of it, without wisdom and insight and and, and the leading of the Holy Spirit, these trials seem anything but the good and wise plan of a loving God. But there in this jail cell, he meets these two men. These two men previously had been serving at the hand of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And they had been been thrown into jail for indiscretions and 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 they have dreams in this jail and they and they share these dreams with with joseph and joseph interprets their dreams and it's about the fate of them and and them returning at least one of them returning to service in the king the other one will be executed but he shares this dream with them and he says hey when you get out and you stand before the king remember me like wink wink help me get out of here but joseph is soon forgotten about Until two years later, that one of these men who is now still in service before the Pharaoh remembers Joseph. And the reason he remembers Joseph is because now Pharaoh has had a dream. And Pharaoh is telling his dream to all of his advisors and wise men and counselors saying, what does this mean? And nobody knows. And and this one guy 
in his administration says, oh, I actually was a cellmate with a guy who was pretty good with dreams. Pharaoh says, well, go get him. So they get Joseph and they clean him up and they shower him and they put him in clothes and he stands before the Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells him his dream and God gives, gives Joseph supernatural insight. And he says, I'll tell you what it means. It means that, that your, your empire is going to have seven years of, of harvest followed by seven years of, of famine. And not only does Joseph interpret the dream, but he gives Pharaoh a strategy for how to get through the seven years of famine that are coming. And Pharaoh was so impressed and so thrilled that this man can do what nobody else can do. He, he makes Joseph his prime minister. He says, okay, you administer all of this strategy and you lead the nation to stock up to the seven good years and to prepare for the seven bad years. And, and we read in the Bible that Joseph was so successful under Pharaoh's reign, prospered so much, and you would think, okay, now, now he acknowledges you know, God's providence. He's, he's prospered so much and he's become so successful that it, it says that, that he forgets about his family and he forgets about how they have betrayed him. But of course we know that God hasn't forgotten and he's weaving all of these things together. And some of you know the end of the story. Right back in Israel, they are now suffering through this same seven-year famine and his family, his brothers that have betrayed him, his father that he hasn't seen for decades are on the brink of catastrophe. And so Jacob, his father, tells the ten older brothers, go down to Egypt and see if you can buy some grain so we don't starve to death. And these foreigners come and they bow before the prime minister to beg for grain, to purchase grain. Who are they bowing before? Their brother Joseph. Now Joseph is in his garb in the palace. They don't recognize him. He recognizes them. And Joseph, we read, is overcome with emotions, but he keeps himself concealed he questions them and he sends them back home and they come back a certain time later according to Joseph's direction and now Joseph is ready to reveal his identity. Now again, put yourself in his shoes. What would you do standing there before your brothers who had led to this destructive pattern after all that they've put you through? And Joseph's entire life, I mean, if you stand back and look of it, it just seems like sort of a haphazard pinball machine, Right? There's no direction, no guiding. I mean, there's been great times and horrible times. Seems like most of it was chance. There's one thing that wasn't chance. That was his brother selling him into slavery, right? That much we know was, the, was nothing more than the sinful actions of his brothers. I, I would have reprimanded for them for their cruelty and, and the life that, that they had led him to. But Joseph is a man full of faith. He trusts God and he looks at his brothers. And look at what he says in, in Genesis 45, weeping, the scriptures tell us. He says to them, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me here before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. For it was not you who sent me here, but God. And Joseph, this man who faced deeper, darker lows and, and higher, brighter highs than most of us will ever face, he understands the providence of God. 
And, and even though it, it seems like no other explanation other than they, these jealous, sinful brothers led to this series of events, and, and Joseph says, no, God sent me here. God sent me here. He says to his brothers later in, in chapter 50, verse 20, he says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What's the providence of God? This is the providence of God. Humans act and God says, I'm sending. And natural events and events of circumstance happen and God says, I'm at work. And people sin and there's even evil and God says, they meant it for for wicked ends, but I mean it for good, for the salvation of many. And we can see the providence of God at work at times. And other times, it, it's, a, it's a mystery. Other times, we don't know the plan and purpose of God. Other times, evil just seems evil. Other times, disaster just leads to more suffering. And suffering just leads to, 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 to depression and despair and more wickedness and more futility. And yet, and yet, do we trust, do we believe that God is at work? And sometimes, like the story of Joseph, like we get to see the good end. Right? And before Joseph died, he got to see the purpose of his life. But other times we don't see it, and yet we have to trust. Other times we don't know it, and yet God says, Believe that I'm a good father who is sovereign, who's in control. In the New Testament letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul talks about the purpose of God, right? We we're saying that, that God's providence is his power ruling with a purpose. What is the ultimate purpose? What's it all leading towards? What is all, all of the ups and downs of life? What is the ultimate end game? In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's articulating the ultimate purpose behind God, God's power, God's sovereignty, God's providence. And he says this, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of the time, to unite all things in Him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We read there about the redemption that we have. That means we've been rescued. We've been forgiven. Redeemed from our sins. Forgiven from all of our wrongs. How? Through the blood of Christ. Through the cross. Through the Son of God who came according to God's sovereign purposes. And gave up his life for you and I. So it's according to the lavish riches of God's grace. God is not stingy with His grace. He is lavish and abundant with His grace and His mercy on His children's lives. According to His good purpose, it says, His good purpose in Christ. A plan, a plan that is culminating in the fullness of time. That means it's all coming together and climaxing at the end of the age, the fullness of the time. When all things come together and all things are united in Christ and justice is done and evil is punished and good is rewarded in Christ reigns and God is glorified. And when we have faith in this plan, faith in this Savior, which says that we have this eternal inheritance. In Christ, you have been predestined 
by the Almighty, the Almighty that works out everything, everything according to His sovereign purpose, according to His sweet providence. And it may not taste sweet now, but can you trust in what you cannot see and hold on to the goodness of God? The goodness of God that's at work through Christ and in His death and in His resurrection. Verse 19 will go on to talk about the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. See, God's power is not just out there. God's power is toward you and I, toward those who believe. Now filled with the same Holy Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead now dwells in us to give us life, to give us victory, to give hope in times of darkness, to give meaning and purpose in times of of chaos, to give peace and even joy in times of despair and brokenness in the world around us, the immeasurable greatness of God's power. See, His sweet providence is working all things together toward a purpose. And we read here in Ephesians that the purpose is that His children, that those who put their hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory, that you and I would glorify God, that you and I would have reason for all of eternity to praise God, to rejoice in God, to enjoy God, to give thanks in God, to gush over God for His glory and His goodness. For his mercy and his grace displayed through Christ. That God is just and merciful and wise and all-powerful. That he chose to redeem us. And that's the purpose of all things. Just as Joseph's life would be used to bring about the salvation of Israel. God's ultimate plan and purpose is, is to redeem his people. To save his people. To glorify himself. To culminate all things in justice and mercy. We don't know the end of the story. I think about my friend, my friend Mike. Grew up with him. At some point, he, he got into drinking and then drugs and then heroin. And most of you know, you try heroin once, man, statistically, it's, it's done. It's done for. And he, he got arrested, ultimately was arrested because he stole from, from friends of his. His own, his own friends stole from, from them, sold sold some of their stuff to get his next hit, ended up arrested in jail, and through communication with him and communication with the friends he had stolen with, my wife and I invited him when he got out on parole to come stay in our home. And he stayed in our home, and we tried to get him connected to the church and to the grace of God and to work, but eventually he began using again, and he was arrested by his parole officer, thankfully put into a rehab program. And yet he... One night, probably high on something, wrapped his car around the telephone pole and became handicapped, permanently crippled, in a wheelchair, no function of his legs, limited function of his hands. A, a man who, who has a son, a man who heard the grace of God, who saw the grace. And you could look at this man's life and see it. You could say it's nothing more than a tragedy, nothing more than failure. But guess what? We don't know the end of the story. And we read stories in Scripture and we can hear testimonies this morning of God's victory and God's grace and people that were in despair. People at living hope that were addicted to heroin that now have been saved and redeemed and now are, are leading lives for Christ. And we can hear those good stories, but, but sometimes we don't know the, 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 the end of the story. Sometimes we don't know that there's light in the darkness, that there's victory in the midst of the tragedy. But the call this morning is not to put your hope in the happy ending, not to put your hope in all the, the victories, but to put your hope in God that is powerful, whose power is ruling over the universe, whose power is ruling with a purpose, amen? 
And so the worship team is going to come up and, and we're going to stand and do what we're going to be doing for all of eternity. Praising God. And, 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 and don't mislead you. Heaven is not just standing and singing for eternity, okay? It's one way that we praise Him. We're going to praise the greatness of our Lord. And as we do, before we stand, I want to pray for us. That God would give us faith to believe this, to trust this, to live this. And so let's stand together and pray. God, we first and foremost just begin with what could be the most foundational premise of human life, that you are almighty, that you are creator, that you have all power. And so God, we acknowledge that you rule sovereignly over the nations and sovereignly over our lives, that your providence is at work. And God, we, we believe, and where we doubt, we ask you to give us strength to believe that you are working all things toward a purpose. And so, Lord, we trust you and we ask you for the faith to trust you. We submit to you and we ask you for for the courage to submit when we cannot. We follow you and we ask you to forgive us when we turn away. Lord, we are awed this morning. We praise you this morning and we now come to you for strength. We now come to you for power. And we know that you're eager to give strength to the weak and power to the frail because you promised so in your word. And so we come with open arms because we are tired and we are weary and we are faithless and we struggle and we need your strength and we need your power. We declare this morning as Jesus taught us that nothing is impossible with God. That in your purpose and in your plan that no relationship, no human heart, no life, no circumstance is outside of your control. And so we hold on to the reality that nothing is impossible with you. And Lord, we take comfort this morning. Comfort your people. Holy Spirit, come and comfort us that are broken, that are in sorrow. Comfort us by your plan. Lord, we rest in you. Father, we rest in you this morning when there is joy in the blessing and we rest in you this morning when there is suffering and when there is hardship and when there is pain. In both cases, Lord, we find rest not in our circumstances, rest not in our our own strength or our own purpose, but we find rest in a good, loving Heavenly Father. And so we acknowledge and we sing that great are you, God. Great are you, Lord. And so, Lord, we pour out our praise. We pour out our lives. We pour out our heart this morning. Hear us and feed us. We ask in Jesus' name.